Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning to sing and read and be encouraged and edified together through both the fellowship that we have and the reason for that fellowship that we've sung about this morning, that we've already read and studied, and we will continue studying this morning. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. So we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be down in verses 28 through the end of the chapter this morning. And as you're turning there, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions to just to think about, to consider. You don't have to answer these vocally. How well do you know Christ? If I were to ask you to describe him, to describe his character... Maybe tell me what you know about him from the Old Testament. Could you even go and show me where Christ is spoken of in the Old Testament? Promises about him? Or maybe where he's even appeared in the Old Testament? It's there. What is his role in the future? And would you be able to describe these things to me? Could you, what could you tell me about these things? And I'll leave you with this, maybe a bit more of a provocative question that plays into our text this morning. Do you think you know and believe better than the demons? It may seem like an odd question, and you'll see why I ask it as we get into our text this morning. But as we, as we turn our attention to the text this morning, our desire is that we would increase in our knowledge and our faith and our obedience as we grow in our knowledge of who Christ is. So, Read along with me as we look at these events that took place in the life of Jesus, beginning in verse 28. When it came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him, and they were coming out of the tombs. And they were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, "'What business do we have with each other, Son of God?' Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Join me in prayer as we begin to look at this text this morning. Father, we thank you for... Just the opportunity we've had already to sing and to rejoice in the great salvation that we share. So we come to this report and narrative of what took place in the life of Christ during his time on earth. I pray that we would understand the significance of this text. That it would not be just merely information, but it would work in our hearts and our minds Father, we recognize all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. May the lessons and the things we observe from these texts, the implications from the things that we will observe this morning, work within us. Would your Holy Spirit 
whom you have promised uh, is alive and working within us to guide us and teach us into all truth. Be active this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Jesus has been previewing the kingdom in the past really few chapters we've been looking at. At the end of chapter 4, as he began to set up the ministry of Christ, we're reminded that he went through all of Galilee, preaching, teaching, healing, doing all sorts of miracles with regard to the kingdom of God. He's been giving, an, been giving a foretaste of the coming kingdom. We saw that in his teaching and the power of his teaching ministry in uh, Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been seeing it the past few weeks as we've looked at his, he's gone down from the mount into Capernaum where he had been ministering to the persons, healing and doing many different miracles. He'd shown his healing and power and authority over sickness. Jesus previewed the kingdom through his power over the nature, over nature, in calming the winds and the seas on the Sea of Galilee just the night before this encounter. And now this morning, we're going to see his power and his authority over the spirits and the spiritual realm. We've been given just a continued just look from every different angle at the power and the authority of Jesus Christ as he walked on this earth and as a foretaste of what is to come in the kingdom. Last week, we cautioned against discounting or downplaying the miracles and miraculous works of Christ as we observed his authority over creation. And this morning, as we come to a text that we've already read, we, we have to be careful to once again not put away or we have to be careful of any desire or tendency to ignore, downplay, or reinterpret what is said about these demons and demoniacs. Demons and demon possession is very real. Just because we haven't all experienced it doesn't make it any less so. It's not made up or imagined. The presence of demons is attested throughout Scripture beginning in the Old Testament. Our focus this morning, however, is not the study of demonology. There is such a study. Or demon possession, but it's on what happens this particular day when Jesus encounters persons possessed by demons. Jesus and the disciples are pictured arriving from Capernaum. They would have landed early in the morning. Remember, they had set out the previous evening to go across the Sea of Galilee. And a trip that normally would have been just four to six hours was significantly longer due to the storm that had hindered them. They've landed on the opposite side of the Sea of Sea of Galilee in a country in the country of Gadara. And it's there, again, likely in the morning, near the sea, which Jesus had calmed the night before that this encounter takes place. Mark and Luke provide many more details about this encounter. Matthew's recount of this is relatively short. Both Mark and Luke, interestingly, focused on just one of the demoniacs or demon-possessed men. And even though there is a lot of interesting info that can be gathered from Mark and Luke's account, we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at that. I'm going to make reference to some of the things they draw in, but we want to focus on the context of Matthew. And the reason for that is each of the gospel writers, as they write their gospel, they have a specific purpose and motivation and drive and message they are trying to communicate. For Matthew, it's the emphasis on the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ. And so, by the very nature, the, the message he writes and the perspective he presents of these same events are going to be slightly different. doesn't make it any less true. 
If you have children or ever had children, try to, several of them tried to give a recount of the exact same event, you would have gotten many different perspectives. Does it make the event any less true? Doesn't mean what the child is saying is any less true. It just is they have a different emphasis. One may want to highlight something in nature. Another one may want to highlight something that happened in the interaction amongst persons. And so while there is certainly the possibility of having incorrect information, that isn't the first thing you should jump to when you see just different accounts of a similar setting. We have the added benefit of the superintending of the Holy Spirit to ensure the accuracy of these gospel accounts as well. One thing you will immediately notice also in this story, you may have already noticed this, especially with how prominent the disciples have been thus far, is how absent they are in this story. Now they're there. They're observing everything that's taking place. They're right there with Jesus, but we do not see them involved in the story. They aren't even mentioned. In fact, it even, Matthew doesn't even bother to mention the disciples got out of the boat. He just talks about Jesus disembarking there. The last word we had from the disciples, in fact, you can look there at verse 27, because it did close with a word from the disciples. And this expression, by the way, this statement, and the way that Matthew has laid out the narrative, it perfectly sets up what we're about to see take place. Because the last thing we see at the end of verse 27 is the disciples observing Jesus speaking and calming the winds and the sea to a perfect calm is what kind of man is this whom even the winds and the waves obey him? Well, verses 28 and 29 open and set the scene. And we're going to see the answer to that question. The, question com- the answer comes from the most unlikely of sources. Jesus, accompanied by his disciples, again, though they are silent throughout this story, begin making their way inland. They don't get very far, though. After just a short distance... Their path is halted by two demoniacs who come running out of the caves and the tombs. These demoniacs, persons who are possessed by demons. We learn that it's many demons in Mark. Matthew summarizes these men by simply noting that they are extremely violent. To add to the drama of the situation, these persons live in the macabre environment of tombs and death. These are death dwellers, violent men. We're told they're naked, running down to encounter and confront Jesus and his disciples. The power and the terror of them was well known in the region. And when they encounter Jesus and the disciples, they ask a question or they they utter an expression. What do you have to do with us? It's an idiomatic expression. It's common in Semitic languages and elsewhere. And though it sounds like a genuine question without any context, it really amounts to a rejection or a repudiation of the other person. Really, it's an idiomatic way of saying, you have nothing to do with us. Be gone. Leave us alone. We don't want you here. It's no surprise. They're demons. He's Jesus. Now, what is fascinating, though, is that in their effort to get Jesus to leave them alone, These demons expose a profound Christology. That is, a profound knowledge of who Christ is. To begin with, it's fascinating and somewhat 
in, in a somewhat startling turn of events, it is these demons who are the ones who answer the question uttered by the disciples the night before as the wind and the waves came to a sudden stop. And in that eerie calm that followed, as they pondered, what kind of man is this? And what must have been a remarkably humbling and perhaps humiliating revelation to the disciples, these violent, unclean, living amongst the dead demoniacs answer the question the disciples posed. This is no man. This is the Son of God. Commentators have noted that throughout the Gospels, some of the highest expressions of Christology often occur from the mouths of demons. But they don't stop with just his identity. Those demons reveal an impressive knowledge and understanding of prophecy and scripture and even belief in its fulfillment in what they next say. The demons here, they, as odd as it may sound, they make an implicit argument, by the way, for the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Old Testament scriptures. How do they do this? By uttering the question, have you come to here to torment us before the time? Now, there's good reason for the use of the definite article, the, before time. This word for time is kairos. And it's utilized to define a specific time, an amount of time, or an appointed time. It's, it's not the generic word for time, such as chronos. We're familiar with that, chronology. Now, this is kairos, a specific, allotted, appointed time. These demons reference a specific predefined time when they will be judged. But that's not all. Notice the biblical and theological knowledge of the demons and their belief in its fulfillment. Just a few things that we can draw out and observe from this brief statement that they utter. First, as we've already noted, they understand and recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. This was hardly accepted at that time, especially not in this Gentile region of Gadara. They believe in final punishment and torment for demons. Jesus will speak to this in more detail in Matthew 25, 41, where he describes this. Revelation 14, 11 says that the smoke of their torment arises forever and ever. The demons knew what had been, what their fate was, and they believed it. They recognize that Jesus will serve as judge in the final judgment with their expectation of him being their tormentor. These things are spoken of and decreed by God. And because they are spoken and decreed by God, the demons believe they are going to take place. These demons understood that now is not the time of final judgment. They seem to understand those things that eluded Nicodemus and the teachers of the law whom Jesus chastised for not understanding and responding to his coming and preaching of the kingdom. Really what the response of these demons shows us is how much there is to learn and to study and to know about Christ from the Old and the New Testament. Christ is found in both the Old and the New and there's a great deal for us to uncover. In some senses, as it was to the disciples that day, this is something of a rebuke to my own understanding and the study of Christ. I mean, these demons have a profound knowledge concerning the Son of God, and they are his enemies. 
We claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We are fellow heirs with him. Call him Lord. And we understand far too little. Our takeaway from this interaction between Jesus and the demons, or one of those, is that our understanding and belief in Scripture needs to grow. At least that's one of the things. I, I look at this and I can't help but be convicted that there is so much more that I need to understand about who Jesus is. But there's another important takeaway. And that takeaway is that knowledge of Jesus and even confidence in what is said about him that it'll take place, that is not enough to save you. As James says in James 2, 19 and 20, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? The demons believed Jesus was the Son of God, but they did not repent. If your knowledge and belief does not lead to repentance over your sins and a change in behavior, then it is no better than the faith of the demons who are destined for eternal torment. Just knowing the right thing is not enough. It's not even close to enough. If we are true disciples, we should be growing in this faith and as James says, in our obedience. And again, it's obedience out of faith, not working toward faith. Jesus had commented the night before on the littleness of the faith in the disciples, and yet they did have some faith. And as we read the Gospels, and you move further and further through the Gospels, as you get into the book of Acts, as you read the New Testament epistles, you begin to see to what extent the faith of those disciples grew I look at my own life and I realize the need for my faith to grow as I struggle to act and live as if I believe God will do what he says he will do. Have you ever struggled with trust that God will provide? I dealt with that this week. I had to confess my littleness of faith. Where scripture provides instructions, do I obey? When I disobey what I really am demonstrating is a littleness of faith, a lack of faith, and how much further I need to grow in my understanding and belief of who Jesus is and who God is. So how do I do that? Well, first you have to know what he desires of you, right? So it does require knowledge. Knowledge is not bad. You have to study your Bibles, Old and New Testament. Secondly, I need to put it into practice. As James says, and, and you think of all the different things you could do, just start with the simple things, just the things that are right in front of you. Stop lying. Stop slandering and gossiping. Stop wasting time. Stop grumbling and complaining. Stop being selfish. Instead, start serving others, putting others before yourself, fellowshipping, increasing your fellowship. Start giving of your resources, praying regularly, showing hospitality to encourage and edify. These are just some of the ways in which we demonstrate that obedience. But they do demonstrate faith. They help, they help you to make that faith real. They also allow you to realize the blessings that accompany obedience. There are many. Well, returning to the story in verse 30, Matthew provides a brief parenthetical here, which interrupts the speech of the demons. Matthew interrupts what they're saying to note that some distance away there was a herd of pigs or swine, as some of your Bibles may read. 
Mark tells us that this was a large herd of around 2,000 pigs. It wasn't just a few over in the distance. It was, a, it was quite the gathering of pigs. They were tended by herdsmen who became important witnesses to what transpires next. So after zooming out and panning over and showing us the herd of pigs, Matthew now turns the, the lens and zooms back in to these demoniacs, specifically to the demons speaking through them. Verse 31 shows that the demons are entreating Jesus. They are begging, they are pleading with him. In the presence of the one who will send them at the time to eternal torment, they plead saying, if you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. Now, why the demons desired to go into the pigs exactly and why Jesus agreed to grant the request is a question we cannot answer this side of heaven. It's one that many persons have guessed at. A lot of time has been spent. But even though we don't know the reason for the request, we can still make some observations about the request. One of them is, as one commentator named Gibbs notes, the demon speech reflects the mystery of evil in that it continues in hatred to set its will against the goodwill and plan of God in Jesus in spite of the awareness of what lies ahead. In other words, even though these demons know that judgment is coming, it has no effect upon them. All they desire to do is persist in their evil. There are two proverbial truths that come out of this response of the demons. One of them is that the guilty flee when none pursue. Have you noticed who has not spoken up to this point in Matthew's narrative? What accusations have not been made? Jesus hasn't attacked them at this point. He hasn't accused them. And yet, it is their desire to flee. They're acutely uncomfortable in the presence of the Son of God. Like cockroaches scurrying from a bright light, their desire to run away. Solomon rightly says in Proverbs 28.1, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. There's a second lesson we can observe, and that's that the destructive nature of sin and wickedness. The response of these demons is to continue in their wickedness, running full long toward the torture, the punishment that their wickedness has brought on and that awaits them. Paul reminds us in Romans, first in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And then what he goes on to say in Romans 6 is what is the end of that sin? And in 6.23, it's the wages of sin is death. But there's a but. And it's a huge but. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Every person who has not and bow their knee to Christ, who is living in sin, is running full on toward hell. Unlike the demons, however, there is the offer of salvation. James shows the progression of sin when he says in James 1.15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. And while demons, those angels who chose to follow Satan in his rebellion against God, have but one destiny, the call for persons who are in rebellion against God and in enmity with him is to repent, to turn, 
unlike these wicked angels, if you are in sin, in rebellion to God, you may yet experience salvation. Your end does not have to be the end of the demons who will suffer eternal torture and torment in hell. God sent Jesus for the very purpose of becoming the sacrifice, the payment, the propitiation for our sins so that we would not suffer the fate of these angelic beings and who are in rebellion against him. I'd be remiss without saying if you have never repented of your sins, then I beg you to do that today. Don't delay another week, another day, another hour. You don't know how much more time you have left on this earth. Those demons long to rush into the pigs thinking they would continue in their destructive endeavors only to drown the swine a moment later. You don't know how much time you have, so confess your sins. Pray to the Lord who, is forgive, who forgives, longs to forgive. Up to this point, Matthew has not noted Jesus speaking. Though according to Mark, he has told the demons that they were going to leave. And Jesus has identified at this point, according to Mark, that they are a legion, that is many of them. Nevertheless, it was not so much the words as the simple presence of Jesus that sent these demons into a panic. And notice what happens next when Jesus speaks. Jesus says in verse 32, go. That's all Matthew records. That is the entirety of the speech of Jesus that Matthew records here. The demons immediately leave the men and enter the herd of pigs. Matthew wants to highlight what was described in Matthew 8.16, where Jesus casts out demons, heals with a word. The power of Jesus' words and speech is what Matthew is drawing our attention to by isolating just this one word of speech from this encounter. The power of Jesus' words and speech has not only the power of bodily health, not only the power of life and death, not only power over nature, but also contains all authority and power over the spiritual realm. There is nothing that is outside the authority and the power of Christ and a simple word from him. Though more was said that day by Jesus, as Mark and Luke indicate, Matthew chooses to leave those things out and to structure the story to emphasize the power and the authority of Jesus' words. And by doing this, Matthew is drawing our attention to the innate power and authority Jesus has. Listen as I read several passages that describe the word of the Lord and the power and authority it contains. And these are in various contexts. We can begin right at the beginning. In Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, 3, God said, notice he spoke, let there be light. And what had not previously existed came into being and there was light. And throughout Genesis 1, we see over and over again, God speaking and it being created and it being formed and it being fashioned where it did not previously exist. The psalmist concur in Psalm 33, first in verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the, by the breath of his mouth all their host. And then in verse 9, For he spoke and it was done, he commanded, and it stood fast. Ezekiel 12, 25, For I the Lord will speak, whatever word I speak will be performed. It will no longer be delayed, for in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. 
And then in the New Testament, in Hebrews, Hebrews 1, we're reminded that he, that is Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And then near the end of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. In other words, it was created out of nothing by the word of his power. He brought matter into existence which previously did not exist. The word of God is not to be trifled with. It is imbued with power and authority. It's one of the reasons that we hold to a high view of Scripture. It contains the words of God, and we want to submit to it and its authority. Staying in Hebrews, you're familiar with the text, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are open and lay bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That is Jesus Christ. We're left without answer as to whether or not the death of the pigs meant that the demons must now depart this world until a new host could be found, or thus removing their immediate involvement in wicked workings in the world, or whether they may have been sent to some preliminary judgment, like you see in 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 1.6. We simply don't know with regard to these demons. Either way, the demons are no longer part of the story. They're gone. They're out of the picture. And the focus now shifts to the people who witness and hear of this miraculous overthrow of the spiritual forces of wickedness. In verses 33 and 34, we see the herdsmen run off into the city to tell everyone what has taken place. They're out of one job, so they become heralds. And they tell them everything, everything that's taking place from the encounter to the demoniacs rushing down to the conversations that took place to the casting out of the demons to the demons going into the herd of swine, the swine running down the hill and the precipice into the sea and drowning themselves. Surely, upon hearing the good news of the removal of these demons and the end to the terrorizing of the town by the demoniacs, the crowd is about to welcome Jesus with open arms, embrace him as their physical savior and as their spiritual savior. Surely that's going to be the response. Sadly, as you already know, that's not at all what happens. The townspeople ignore the great benefit Jesus has brought to them. They had tried to restrain these demon-possessed persons who were menaced to the town with chains and imprisonment. And with this supernatural demonic strength, they were able to break apart chains. They couldn't contain them. They had to reroute how they even got around the city because of these demons. They, they kept people from even passing by the normal way. They were an absolute menace to society. But like the crowd when Jesus was crucified, they wanted to exchange the Savior for Barabbas. As Matthew notes, by simply speaking, Jesus has delivered them. But instead of thanking him and recognizing how he has helped him, they beg him to depart, wanting to have nothing to do with Jesus. 
Interestingly, just like the demons, the townspeople recognize the great power and authority of Jesus, but they respond in fear, not in faith, to this authority and kingship. They respond with the, in the same manner as the demons, and they're begging and pleading. The fear of the townspeople may have been in some part due to the fear of financial loss, due to the loss of this large herd of pigs that would have been significant sustenance to many of the persons of the city. If that was the case, the townspeople preferred pigs to people and swine over a savior, as D.A. Carson notes. If their fear is in fact over the financial loss caused by the exorcism of these demons, then we see the value these persons place on temporal wealth over the salvation of their souls. And I'm fairly confident that makes up at least some of what was going on, although I don't think it was all of it. But this is, that aspect of it is very true today, especially in our affluent culture where persons desire money and their desire for wealth, it dominates their time, their attention, it drowns out the calls for discipleship. For the townspeople, their fears lead them to rejection and terror. And again, they share that same fear of the demons, that the judgment is near and wish to have the source of that judgment as far from their midst as possible. And so these people react with a typical response of unbelief to avoid the source of conviction. It's the reaction of all who have not experienced the transforming power of the gospel. As A.W. Tozer said, men are still hiding from the presence of God among the trees of the garden and feel acutely uncomfortable when the matter of their relation to God is brought up and they only manage to live at peace with themselves by forgetting that they are not at peace with God. And so banish him from our midst so that we don't have to be reminded that we are not at peace with God. Where the demons had previously entreated Jesus to send them away, the crowds now entreat Jesus to go away. Tense people respond in nearly the identical way as the demons themselves. That's the response of unbelief. But why? When the wisdom of God, we don't know. In his sovereignty, he has hardened their hearts at this time. What does become abundantly clear is that even miracles are not enough to convince and change the heart of unbelief. Faith is truly a supernatural work. No amount of convincing, compulsion, or cajoling, and no number of miracles can change a heart darkened with sin. It is solely the power of the Holy Spirit that can transform that heart of sin. And the means and the method which he most often uses is the preaching and the teaching of Scripture. And that's what we are called to do. Now you may wonder, what became of the former demoniacs? Well, according to Mark, they wanted to join Jesus' disciples. It's not really a surprise. They had firsthand witnessed this transformation and this change. But Jesus wasn't going to let them be one of his immediate disciples who followed him and joined him. They became disciples, but he had another mission for them. Jesus sent them out as some of the first missionaries and ambassadors to the Gentiles. That region of Decapolis, where Gadara is, is a part of Decapolis, which was comprised of ten major cities. It was in the Transjordan region, and it was made up predominantly of the Gentiles. That becomes pretty obvious when you realize that it was a herd of swine being kept by the city, and swine or pigs were unclean to Jews. 
those in the city and the surrounding area would continue to hear the testimony and the witness of these men for as long as they served as preachers concerning the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. You see, even here, Jesus is not done with the hard-hearted townspeople. They would continue to hear the message over and over and over again. It's a helpful reminder to never cease in proclaiming the gospel, no matter how hard the ground looks and how limited the response. Our job is to not ask who or why or when, but to keep preaching the gospel and pleading for persons to respond to the authority of Christ and to submit and repent. Our attitude should imitate that of Spurgeon, who said, I can understand the sovereignty in the sovereignty of God, not seeing persons saved through my preaching. However, I can never imagine being content with this. Do we have the heart of Jesus, who though rejected by these people, Think about what he had just done for them. There isn't a word of thanks. They come down and ask him to leave and depart. That would have hurt my feelings. But how does Jesus respond? He sends missionaries and ambassadors to them so they will continue to hear the message proclaimed over and over again. Do we have the heart of Jesus who though rejected still cared for them. As we've noted, the disciples were merely bystanders and witnesses to all these events. But I believe these events helped to prepare them as well, and I think they should help prepare us. It prepared them for the future mission where they were going to be rejected. It showed them the need for a heart of compassion even in the midst of that rejection. Jesus was going to send them out and he warned them, you will be rejected. And the message has continued down through the ages. It was there in the epistles and elsewhere. We can expect rejection of both the message and our persons as long as we preach and proclaim Jesus Christ. And we're not greater than Jesus, so why would we expect anything different? If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was rejected by persons for helping them, then how much more should we expect rejection? And yet, what do we instead try to do? We change the message. We try to cozy up to people because we want to be accepted. We crave acceptance so much, far too much. doesn't mean our attitude and our response should do anything to create that rejection. No, it should have the same compassion, the same gentleness, the same love that Jesus displayed while we proclaim the truth. Our responsibility is to be faithful ambassadors of the gospel. As we conclude, I want to make a final word on the activity of Satan and his demons in the world. And in doing so, I find C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters helpful and instructive, though it is fiction. In one interaction, the senior demon, Screwtape, tells his nephew, Wormwood, that... If he can get his human to think he is not there, he can control everything that that person does. As Grant Osborne notes, this is the case with too many Christians, this pragmatic atheism. That is, we intellectually believe in Satan, but we act as if he doesn't exist. Spiritual warfare in this life is very real. And yet Satan especially in our culture, has done a wonderful job of making us think that he doesn't actually exist. Intellectually, we know he does, but I mean, we don't see it 
in everyday life. At least we don't think we see it in everyday life. And while believers and true disciples of Jesus Christ cannot be controlled by demons, we can still, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5.8, be devoured by Satan. And our victory is wholly dependent on the degree to which we are submitted to Christ. I want to read two passages of Scripture. I want you to turn there with me. First turn to 1 Peter 5. These are passages that speak to this very real spiritual battle. First Peter 5, beginning in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be sober of spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now turn with me to Ephesians 6. As we begin to answer the question, how do we resist? How is it that we stand firm in the faith? Beginning in verse 10 of Ephesians 6, we read, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Having done this with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. In the midst of so much wickedness in this world, it is easy to become distracted and think our battle is, is in fact against flesh and blood, isn't it? And we have to stop and remind ourselves that it is not against flesh and blood. Jesus did not destroy the demoniacs. He exercised the demons. And then Jesus had compassion on these men. And they became his ambassadors and his missionaries to the Gentiles. Some of those who have been the fiercest enemies of the gospel... When the hardness of their heart is changed, when they've experienced the transforming work of the gospel, have become some of the most fervent for the gospel. Paul, who was formerly Saul, is one of the key examples, but there's so many more throughout history. 
We must remember where our battle lies. We need to make it our ambition to take up the full armor of God in order to stand firm against the spiritual attacks that will be laid against you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Satan and his demons have had thousands of years to study human, humans, human interaction, and human personalities. They know what temptations to lay. That's why we are told to be alert. Don't expect an attack from the front. It'll come where you least expect it. So you be alert and ready. And all the while, not losing focus of what our primary responsibility and our primary objective is, which is to proclaim the message and the hope of salvation and deliverance from the domain of darkness and wickedness and future torment. And so may our lives be a testimony in word and deed to the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example that was laid before us in Jesus' interaction that day with those demoniacs, with the town, and the demons. Father, as we observe these, uh, just the many different nuances and observations from this story, I pray that we would be quick to identify how we can apply these implications to our lives recognizing where our faith needs to grow, recognizing our need to suffer humbly and gently, recognizing our need to be more faithful ambassadors, recognizing our need to do more to stand firm, to put on the full armor of God. May we go forth from here looking for how we might encourage, exhort, and reprove one another as we come alongside Thanking you for the church you have given us, persons you have placed in our lives that are there to help in this spiritual battle. And while fighting the spiritual battle, may we faithfully minister as ambassadors of Jesus Christ to a world that is so is hurting and in so much need, destined for the same torment and torture described of those demons. In your name, amen.